Corinthians where he seeks to answer specific questions that had been sent to him. And the first questions he deals with have to do with celibacy, sex, and marriage. Now, he's going to be very explicit in answering these questions, and some might be a bit uncomfortable discussing them publicly, but they are part of Holy Scripture, written under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and were originally intended to be read in the churches. So we're going to try to be as open and as frank as Scripture is with a topic that is all too often hush-hush in the church. Now, to understand Paul's responses here, we have to first try to determine what the questions were that he had been asked. And in our passage for consideration this morning, apparently the questions had to do with celibacy and sex in marriage. Some, as we noted a couple of weeks ago, felt that the body was evil and that all instincts and pleasures were to be suppressed. That the highest form of Christian existence was the ascetic life where you cut yourself off from all earthly pleasures and the possible problems that come from them. Well, it appears that some in the church felt that the only way to deal adequately with the problems related to sexual expression was to take a vow of celibacy. And Paul had made it clear that sex outside of marriage was sinful. But what about sex in marriage? Should Christian husbands and wives also become celibate? Well, apparently some in the church were saying yes. So Paul moves to deal with this question. Now, 1 Corinthians 7 is not a full treatise on marriage. And if you only read what is said here about marriage, you'll get the impression that Paul has a very low view of it. But that's not true. In Ephesians 5, he views marriage as a picture of the relationship between Christ and the church. So he obviously doesn't see marriage as an undesirable necessity. He sees it as the highest and holiest of all human relationships. But again, Paul isn't here presenting a treatise on marriage. He's simply answering a question about the place of sex in marriage. He begins by making it clear that sexual drives are designed for marriage. 1 Corinthians 7, 1 and 2. Now concerning the things about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. But because of immoralities, let each man have his own wife, and let each woman have her own husband. 
Paul's answer to the question about celibacy is yes, it's okay to be celibate. It's good. There's nothing wrong with it. Now, the phrase to touch a woman is a euphemism for having sexual relations with a woman. Paul is not saying we should never touch one, that it's wrong to shake their hand or put your arm around one. Now, the early church even greeted one another with a holy kiss. So he wasn't saying it's never good to touch a woman. He's saying that it's all right to be celibate, to decide not to marry, that there's nothing wrong with it. But then he goes on to show that that, however, is not the normal pattern. Most people do get married. They become husbands or wives. Now, at first glance, it does look like Paul is indicating that celibacy is preferred over marriage and that marriage is merely allowed. But that doesn't gel with other passages in which Paul speaks of the beauty of marriage, nor does it square with God's intention in creation. So when Paul says, because of immoralities, he's not suggesting that marriage really isn't good, but that it's better than being immoral. He's merely recognizing the fact that God created men and women with sexual drives that are intended to be expressed between husbands and wives. And obviously, since the sexual drive was created by God, it's not evil or wicked. But it is often misused and even misunderstood. Paul made it clear in the sixth chapter that our sexual appetite isn't merely a hunger to be satisfied like our appetite for food. Instead, our sexual drive is an awareness of incompleteness that seeks to be fulfilled with a mate. God intended from creation for a man to find completion with a woman. So he gave us a strong desire that would draw male and female together to make a bond, to become one flesh. God designed the drive and planned for its fulfillment in marriage. So Paul says, let each man have his own wife and let each woman have her own husband. There's nothing wrong with marriage. You know, God didn't make a mistake by giving us a sexual drive and then have to come up with a way for us to express it without being immoral. Our sexual nature and the marriage bond was planned by God from the beginning. But in answer to their question, yes, it's fine if some choose not to marry. He will go on to further explain his answer later in the chapter, but yes, it's okay to be celibate. However, it is God's intention for most men and women to marry. And the sexual drive was designed to draw couples together. 
Paul then takes it a step further to show not only was the sexual drive designed for marriage, but marriage is designed for sexual expression. Verses 3 and 4. Let the husband fulfill his duty to his wife, and likewise also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise also the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Now, the duty Paul is talking about here is sex. But duty is, in my opinion, a poor choice of words. It makes it sound like sex is a chore. The phrase is literally translated, let the husband pay the debt he owes his wife, and vice versa. That's a little better. The idea Paul is communicating here is that sexual fulfillment is something both partners in a marriage deserve and must receive. It's something that God created to be freely expressed in marriage for mutual enjoyment and satisfaction. In fact, God designed it to be the most pleasurable experience humanly possible. And when expressed in a loving, giving manner to one another, it can be. Now, just to be clear, when Paul says this is a debt that is owed one another, he's not saying that sex is something that is to be selfishly demanded from your partner. It's never to be something that is demanded on the basis of, I want what is due me. Rather, it is something that both should recognize as a blessing to be shared and entered into with the attitude, what can I give, not what can I get. It's something your partner is entitled to have, and you have a responsibility to see to it that his or her need in this area is met. That's what Paul means. When he says, we owe it to one another. Something else ought to be said here. Sex is not a commodity to be withheld from your partner. Or used in a perverted sense of bartering favor for favor. It is to be a mutual submission where both willingly give their body to the other and seek to bring their mate to the point of ultimate physical pleasure and satisfaction. So sex is a gift of God, designed to bring pleasure to both husband and wife, and is to be freely enjoyed within the bonds of marriage. Having acknowledged that, it must be recognized that sex is therefore intended for more than simply having babies. Procreation is obviously a very important part of it, and excluding the possibility of conception from sexual expression does reduce the complete giving and receiving 
that's intended to take place. But to insist that the only reason for intercourse is to produce children reduces the scope of God's intention in giving us the gift of sex. Sex is a gift of God that married couples should feel free to enjoy just for the fun of it. And to say that in no way makes sex cheap or dirty. Now read through the more explicit sections of the Song of Solomon that I didn't read this morning when the children were here. If you want to see what sex is supposed to be like in marriage, it may do wonders for your married life. So sexual drives are designed for marriage, and marriage is designed for sexual expression. But are there exceptions to that general rule? Yes, there are. And Paul deals with them next. Verses 5 and 6. Stop depriving one another, except by agreement for a time that you may devote yourselves to prayer and come together again, lest Satan tempt you because of your lack of self-control. But this I say by way of concession, not a command. What is it that Paul is conceding here? There is some debate as to whether his concession goes with the verse that precedes it or the verse that follows it, but I feel it goes with verse 5. I believe he's saying that in spite of God's design, a married couple may go on a sexual fast. He's not commanding it or even recommending it. But if they both want to, he sees nothing wrong with a couple going without sex for a time. It must, however, be mutually agreed upon and only temporary in nature. He doesn't want them indefinitely depriving one another of what they are due. And notice the only thing he mentions as a reason for doing so is a time of prayer, perhaps a time when intense extended prayer is needed because of a crisis in their life. So yes, under those circumstances, it may be appropriate for a couple to abstain from sexual activity. But no one is to become celibate if they're married. To do so, Paul says, would open them and their mate to unnecessary temptation. A mutually agreed upon time for prayer is fine, but a married couple must not prematurely stop having sex. As long as either has a desire for sexual activity, it must not be withheld. The next exception to the general rule of sexual expression is for those who have the gift of celibacy. Verse 7, he says, Yet I wish that all men were even as I myself am. However, each man has his own gift from God, one in this manner and another in that. Paul says he wishes all men were like himself. 
unmarried. He'll explain why later on in the chapter. It has to do with the current societal situation and the freedom to minister without conflicting obligations. But even at that, he recognized that it was a gift from God for a man or a woman to be able to remain celibate. It's a special condition, not the norm. Apparently some have been created without a strong desire for sexual expression or have been given a special measure of control to keep sexual desires in check. And God can put those individuals to special use. They have a gift that makes possible an exceptional role in life and a fulfilled life apart from a husband-wife relationship. So there's nothing wrong with someone who chooses to go through life unmarried and never gives expression to sexual drives. In fact, they may have a special gift that enables them to do so without feeling incomplete or deprived in any way. The final exception to the general rule of sexual expression in marriage relates to those who have lost their mate. Verses 8 and 9. But I say to the unmarried and to widows that it is good for them if they remain even as I. But if they do not have self-control, let them marry, for it is better to marry than to burn. Paul is here addressing the unmarried and the widows. And by unmarried, he is referring to those who have been formerly married, but are no longer married. He will later address himself to virgins, and that includes both male and female virgins. He's here speaking to those who have lost a mate through divorce or death. And he tells them that it is good for them to remain as he is, to remain unmarried. Now, many feel that Paul had been married. He was a Jewish rabbi, and they normally married at 18. And apparently he had been a member of the Sanhedrin because he cast his vote against Stephen, and members of the Sanhedrin had to be married. Perhaps his wife left him when he became a Christian or died. We don't know. But whatever the case, he felt those who had lost their mates would be better off if they remained Unmarried. Now, again, he's going to share the advantages of being single a little further on, so we won't deal with that now. But it does appear that he feels if they can remain unmarried, that that is to be preferred. However, he also recognizes that those who have been married are going to have a big void in their life if they're no longer able to express their sexual desires. And he actually encourages young widows to remarry in his first letter to Timothy. And even here, while Paul does think it better not to remarry, 
He says there's nothing wrong if you choose to do so. Now, divorced people must meet certain qualifications before they can remarry, and we will touch on them next week. But there's nothing at all wrong with a widow or widower remarrying. In fact, if they feel a need to give expression to their sexual passions, they ought to get married. For as Paul says, it's better to marry than to burn. And contrary to the contention of some, he's not saying it's better to marry than to burn in hell. He's saying it's better to marry than to burn with passion. You see, God understands our needs. He designed us, and he wants to see our needs met. But he also knows how those needs can be best met. So he hasn't left us to our own devices. He has revealed to us how to get the most out of life, how to find real happiness and satisfaction. And it begins when we submit to Him, give our desires to Him, and let Him direct their fulfillment. As we noted a couple of weeks ago, when we surrender our all to Him, it includes our body. And today we get even more specific. When we surrender our all to Him, it includes our sexual drives and desires. Doing so, however, doesn't mean we are deprived. Doing so enables us to enjoy a gift of God as He intended it to be enjoyed from the very beginning.